and welcome to the podcast, Penn Talks Science, a podcast run by students from the University of Pennsylvania that features casual conversations and engaging experts to talk about the most interesting current scientific topics. My name is Danielle, and I am a PhD student studying health communication at the Annenberg School for Communication. Continuing the theme of vaccinations, Dr. Damon Santola joins us today to talk about his area of expertise in social networks and behavior change and how this work specifically relates to COVID-19 vaccine information sharing and behaviors. So, Dr. Santola, thank you so much for joining us today. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself and your research interests? So, I'm Damon Santola, I'm a professor of uh, communication, sociology, and engineering here at the Annenberg School. I have several associations throughout the university. I'm a senior fellow at LDI, um, and I'm also the director of the Network Dynamics Group, um, which is housed here in Annenberg, but has you know people all over the university and also all over the country affiliated with it. Um, and so the work we do really is it looks at the network dynamics of behavior change in sort of large scale social change processes like social movements or intentions to get vaccinated or behavior surrounding any of the really preventative measures like wearing face masks. And in a non-public health space, things like the emergence of social norms, changes in linguistic conventions, um, the emergence of social and cultural categories as those change over time. So it's a... A lot of different topics that we look at and what's sort of central to those is the dynamics by which individual people's behaviors aggregate up to produce collective phenomena that are often difficult to predict or anticipate without you know this kind of science. In your book, Change, right about the coronavirus, quote, once the virus took hold, it expanded exponentially, but something else was spreading that spring. It wasn't a disease, it was behavior, end quote. Could you talk about how the spread of the coronavirus compares to the spread of behaviors that you mentioned in your book? And maybe more specifically, what is the difference between a simple contagion and a complex contagion? And why is this distinction meaningful? Yeah, so the idea of simple and complex contagion has been um, something I've been working on for about a decade, and or actually quite a bit longer than that. But the spread of the coronavirus and the spread of related behaviors like wearing face masks um, showed two remarkably different patterns. And those patterns were exemplary of the difference between simple contagions and complex contagions. So simple contagion is kind of our classic model from epidemiology. If someone's infected with a disease and there's a standard mode of transmission, let's say the flu or the uh, COVID-19 virus where, you know, uh, intimate contact results in transmission, then it doesn't matter how many healthy people you know. All that matters is you came into direct contact with a sick person and that contact was sufficient for transmission. So each kind of contact in the network is a bridge uh, spreading, you know, a contagion from person to person. So when we think about pathogens spreading, this is the model we typically use. And that model, you know, has been around since really the earliest 
1900s, and we've developed it, you know, over the course of the century into applications for social science, thinking largely about um, information spreading. So how do media signals diffuse into society, and then how does that translate into like consumer behavior or voting behavior? And we pretty much relied on the same logic, which is someone finds out about, you know, a new candidate, and they tell someone else, and they tell someone else, and the sort of expectation is that that spreading process of contact equals transmission, which is how we think of pathogen spreading, also is a pretty good model for how information spreads. And then we sort of generalized, and this is social scientists in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, 2000s, generalized from that logic into, well, you know, behavior change and social contagion more generally, and that sort of idea that beha- behaviors can be contagious. And so this work has had, you know, a uh, really nice grounding in some of the excellent social science done in like the 50s and 60s and also more contemporary proponents of this view, like uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, right? Talked about this sort of, you know, viral epidemic as a model for social change or just spreading in general. Where my work really comes in is a series of studies that sort of pull apart the spreading dynamics of information and disease on the one hand and behaviors and, you know, belief change on the other. And the real wedge between them is what is the influence of other people on our thinking and decision making? And it turns out that for behaviors that are difficult or costly or unfamiliar, something that kind of goes against existing norms or that might have some social risk attached to it, be embarrassing. These are things where just being exposed to the idea or the behavior isn't enough to convince us. And so in those cases, we require social reinforcement for multiple people. And this is a phenomenon known as complex contagion there's a qualitative difference between seeing something or finding out about it, which is fundamentally the question of awareness, right? I know about it. There's a distinction between that and making a decision to change your behavior or your lifestyle. Typically, when we have reinforcing signals from multiple people, it's not just that we have, you know, two or three or four, it's that we start to see that behavior or that belief as something that's sort of normative, as like people are doing it. And that change in thinking from this person's doing it to people are doing it is a qualitative shift in our understanding of our relationship to this behavior, our sense that like, oh, this is something that we should do too. Think now about people at home kind of adjusting to pandemic life and all of the concerns and the sort of safety issues that come up um, regarding, you know, next steps and reintegration, coming back to school, entering classrooms, um, going out and exercising, going to the gym. And so as we sort of make these decisions, what kind of gets us out of our inertia, which is like we're in a safe place, we know how to behave, into the next stage of behavior, which is, all right, I'm going to go start exercising now, or I'm going to go start attending classes now. And you can say, well, there's official mandates, everyone says it's safe now, but you will notice that you tend to look at other people and what they're doing. And this works in both directions. Sometimes the official mandate is that everyone stay home. But if a lot of people are going out, people say, well, basically everyone seems to be going out. I don't think it's that dangerous. Otherwise, people wouldn't be doing it. And this happened with face masks, which is the sort of example I talk about in that passage of the book, where, you know, there were communities in which everyone wore face masks and people who didn't want to felt, you know, like that was sort of normative. But there were communities in which no one was wearing face masks, even though the government was telling them to. It felt weird to put a face mask on and, and be in a social place with everyone else not wearing a face mask. And it even felt like it was a violation, not just of the norms, but of like the moral or political code of that group, which is to say face masks became emblematic of political affiliation. These kinds of behavior changes 
that require some degree of social approval or social confirmation tend to sort of depend on the social networks around you in a way that looks very different and fundamentally behaves very different than the way that diseases tend to propagate through networks. The punchline is when it comes to any kind of policy challenge, fundamentally, we've been focusing for a very long time on spreading information or getting the word out. But as we saw with face masks, although the coronavirus spread very easily across party lines and across socioeconomic differences, face masks exhibited really clear boundaries where it would like spread into one group. And actually, because it took hold in that group, other groups were more resistant to it. And so there were all these sort of social distinctions that played an enormous role in whether or not face masks were used. And that kind of process of the social network and the relationship people have and the relevance people perceive, all of that factors into the dynamics of complex contagion in a way that doesn't matter for simple contagion. And I'm curious if you have any additional thoughts building off of this idea of complex contagions about how vaccine hesitancy specifically might spread through a network and possibly how the shape of the network, for example, or social reinforcement may affect the spread of anti-vaccine beliefs. Yeah, the question of vaccine hesitancy is a really subtle one. Um, I would say there's sort of two parts to it. One is then when we think about the folks who aren't getting vaccinated and the current push right now, and it's at lots of tiers. It's at the tier of like vaccine availability, at the tier of people who want to get vaccinated, but it's just kind of inconvenient. The people who are a little worried, they're unsure. And then the people who like fundamentally mistrust mainstream medical care, then the people who are just, you know, opposed to it, like morally and ethically, right? So you've got this sort of range and it's like, well, how do you target people that are, who are actually going to be responsive to, you know, these kinds of initiatives? And I would say, on the one hand, you've got the people who are just kind of unsure what to think. Um, they don't have any principled sort of beliefs on one side or the other. And this is the, the case where I've talked about the complex contagion of doubt. And what's going on there is you see a lot of debates online about uh, vaccine safety. And this is prior to you know the pandemic. This is usually around MMR vaccines for children. But of course, it's just kind of spilled over into the pandemic as well. And Part of what's going on, and this was a series of studies that that was done a few years ago, is that the pro-vaccination side and the anti-vaccination side don't equally affect the debate. And this is a a very sort of important kind of subtle point about social science and about the sort of logic of collective behavior, where if you have a person and you give a person two different points of view, then they can evaluate that critically and come to a decision. But when you have lots of people having a conversation. You have people who are sort of audience members to that conversation, which is what social media is, right? You've got lots of opinions flying back and forth. Each of those sort of opinions flying back and forth acts as kind of a reinforcing signal for something, which is this debate. So the kind of anti-vaxxer strategy had been not just to present, you know, falsehoods or misinformation about vaccines, but to argue both sides of the debate to actually argue with themselves. Um, and they even invented bots who would argue with themselves. And this seems puzzling because why would you have arguments on both sides? And the idea is to legitimize the fact that there is actually a debate because what's at stake there isn't convincing someone to believe one piece of misinformation or another, as much as convincing someone to believe that there's legitimacy in the controversy. And, it, and there's a sort of a series of sort of steps that we go through when we reason about these things. But as soon as there's legitimacy about the controversy, there's risk. 
And as soon as there's risk, then we have to worry about like, are we making a good decision or a bad decision? And now the information on the side that gives you accurate um, advice or, you know, uh, recent CDC updates about uh, vaccines isn't taken as positive information as much as more fodder for this debate, right? So it like the, the back and forth, or at least framing the conversation as a back and forth, does a tremendous amount of work in shifting how people think and talk about it, even offline amongst their neighbors and everybody else when they sort of try to figure out what's going on. The consequence of that is that when there's a worry about doing harm, particularly to one's children, right? And this is where the MMR vaccine becomes really susceptible to this kind of manipulation. There's a sort of first do no harm principle, which of course we're familiar with among physicians, but it's also, you know, among parents, which is you don't want to do something that hurts your kid. And the threat of getting the measles down the road is a distant threat, right? It's kind of far away. It's vague. But the threat of sticking your, a needle into your child that could result in, you know, life-altering consequences, you would feel responsible for that. And so that creates a kind of immediacy and an individual responsibility that is attached to this uncertainty of like, well, maybe there is a debate here. And so essentially the uncertainty kind of pushes people into a, a place of like, what's the safest thing I can do? And the safest thing appears to be inaction. And so the point is that on the vaccination debate, it's not actually a symmetrical debate. It's that the arguments on both sides are actually favoring one side more than the other, which is the very fact of a debate is favoring the sort of anti-vaxxer position in the sense that it creates the hesitancy, the fear, the reluctance. I talk in the article about how this strategy has been used in lots of different contexts, but essentially it's the strategy of doubt. And we've seen this also in the context of climate change, how the promotion of doubt has like led to um, delays in climate change legislation and so forth. It's more acute when you're talking about parents and the potential of harming their children because of this sort of fear of doing harm versus, you know, inaction being perceived as a safer course, course of action or a safer route. So that's one side of the notion of vaccine hesitancy engaging the social media networks and the sort of way we perceive it through contagions. The other part of it is specific communities that have longstanding biases that create mistrust. So remember I talked about these different sort of kinds of persons that we think about when we think about increasing vaccine rates. And so some are people who are just uncertain, but then there are the other group who are actually more to the reluctant side who actually have like genuine uh, mistrust of uh, vaccine information. And the community I've been thinking a lot about recently is the African-American community in the U.S. who have suffered through a horrendous list of abuses at the hands of the American medical um, establishment and in ways that, you know, some were implicit, like implicit race and gender bias, which is something I study and work on, you know, even today among physicians, you can run a study and it's right there in the data. You can see um, that these biases are real. What's perhaps more disturbing is that some of these were actually institutionalized forms of racial discrimination, where more or less a policy of sterilizing um, poor black women um, in the U.S. up through the 1990s. It's, you know, this sort of hideous legacy. And people who are educated in this community are aware of this legacy. And so it creates a kind of community awareness that medical information, medical advice, doctors' um, advice in particular, needs to be taken in a way that is 
reserved, cautious, and ultimately thought of as, you know, the in-community, the sort of the safety net of your community is, is a better, more reliable judge of this information than the advice you're getting from a clinician. And this is really important because this frames um, the entire community's relationship to medicine and public health. It's extremely subtle because whenever we talk about bias, we almost always talk about it as this wholly negative thing. When we talk about implicit race and gender bias in medicine, it is absolutely a negative thing. We want to el- eliminate health disparities, right? Bias is the, is the problem. In this case, bias is more subtle because many of the strategies that are used by the African-American community to, that, that uh, encode some of these biases are also strategies that create community solidarity and mental and emotional well-being, right? A sense of safety and, and trust. Um, in a world where there's there's a lot of antagonism and racism. That's something you don't just want to dismantle and say, well, let's get rid of all the bias because some of the factors that are keeping that bias in place are actually things that we think of as like valuable things for a community to have. So this is where the research I'm doing right now is, is engaging, is thinking like, well, what is actually uh, the goal of public health messaging when you're dealing with these historical biases that are like completely understandable? Um, um, but in this really weird and rare circumstance where we've got a worldwide pandemic where there's absolutely no one with good intuitions about how to behave in a pandemic. No, I mean, no one alive today had lived through anything like this, right? So we don't know how to behave. So we are dependent upon science to tell us. And now if you've got communities who are inherently resistant to that information, then that puts those communities at an additional risk. Right. And now you've got the reason that they're reluctant to sort of take that information seriously is because of this history of abuses. So you basically have a compounding inequity. You've got a history of abuse and then you've got a population because the history of abuse is now more vulnerable to this bizarre worldwide situation. And so it's a problem that needs to be solved. But my view is it needs to be solved carefully. Because when we look at the way that networks are structured, the way that networks can amplify biases, which we've shown in several, so we have uh, six published studies now showing how the structure of social networks and interactions in contexts like climate change and contexts like smoking risks, um, looking at implicit race and gender bias among physicians, how the networks can actually change the bias among people who are participating in a conversation. And by shifting the conversation networks, actually changing the pattern of interactions, you can actually structurally alter the bias in the population. It's a very exciting set of results, but we're looking at this now in the context of social media networks in the African-American community. Um, and part of what I'm really trying to be attentive to is how the networks also facilitate community solidarity and well-being and how you can sort of create a conversation that isn't a top-down messaging approach that's like telling people what to do because first and foremost if populations mistrust public health it's likely to backfire but second of all because you know in (laughs) in the u.s in a good functioning democracy we don't want citizens who are just going to do what the government tells them to do i think we all recall at one point that President Trump said that people should try drinking chlorine bleach. When misinformation comes from the highest sources, you don't want citizens who are just going to say, okay, well, the government told me so. Right? You want citizens who are going to critically engage with that information and evaluate it and make their decisions in a smart and hopefully productive way. And so how do we do that on a very fast time scale where there's an urgency of the pandemic and then also hopefully promote engagement in a sort of a nuanced and thoughtful way with new public health information among the African-American community that doesn't just address the immediate challenge of vaccine hesitancy, but actually creates like a thoroughgoing change in the relationship between public health and, and and the Black community in a way that ultimately improves 
the way in which public health information is filtered and ultimately influences and promotes the right kind of action. But I think this has to be done in a way that, you know, engages and fundamentally empowers communities to discuss and think about and evaluate public health information. And so in a nutshell, that's the, um, that's the ambition of the work I'm doing now. I'm curious if you have any final thoughts about what public health and health communication practitioners and researchers can consider when developing campaigns targeting increased vaccination uptake. Most recently in the Times, the population who was the most reluctant were Republican men, who were like down around 50%, which is striking, right? And so these are the kinds of, I would say also, just as a footnote, like this is the reason why we do social science is because, you know, two years ago, who can make these predictions, right? And so the more that we understand about how these social networks operate, the more that we understand about how, you know, information gets filtered and shifted um, and turned into these biases that are really quite surprising, where, you know, people who we think of as, you know, educated and who have access to medical care, which historically has been the issue, are, you know, voluntarily selecting themselves out of medical care. It sort of changes the conversation from one of, you know, it's a logistical and technical problem um, and maybe a problem of monetary incentives, all the kinds of things that we've historically tried to do from like an economic or, you know, supply chain perspective. Now I think people are fully appreciating that like it is a sociological problem. It's the way that people perceive each other and perceive like their role and their ideology and fundamentally their identity is playing a role in all of these like, you know, massively consequential concrete decisions like getting vaccinated for a pandemic. And so I think that the way that we have to approach it is it's to think about the people and the groups and what their relationships are to each other and, and the other groups. And in the book, I talk about this kind of change process in the context of networks. I'm always talking about it in terms of this sort of like this infrastructure for contagion at a very large level, like macro scale. But um, in terms of the people in the network, the two factors that matter for a given person are, you know, reinforcement and relevance. And so, you know, the question is, well, do the networks around them create enough reinforcement from relevant people to help shift their thinking towards decision making that they wouldn't make, you know, decisions they wouldn't make otherwise? And that's that's largely what. I think the sort of future of this work in terms of the next like six months and all of our campaigns to initiate, you know, more effective strategies from a public health point of view um, and a public policy lens more generally to initiate these kinds of behavior changes will focus on is, well, how do we create influences that are far more effective than what we've relied on in the past? What we've done recently is like, is this notion of quote unquote influencers, right? You have one person who is famous who says, I got vaccinated. And I think people are cutting on to the fact that that's not effective. And the reason it's not effective is because it fundamentally is assuming that this decision is like a simple contagion, which is that like you have one person who has a lot of people, you spread it to everyone and voila, then everyone changes their behavior. And it's like, well, no, everyone knows that that person got vaccinated is what everybody knows, but it doesn't actually translate into the kind of behavior change we want to see. And so it's very much a kind of like, targeting neighborhoods, targeting online networks in like very strategic ways. And this is um, the state of the art of the science, which is to say we 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago wouldn't have been able to conceptualize these kinds of problems in such an analytically um, rigorous way. 
but the science has now allowed us to sort of get more traction on this and to sort of see how these policy interventions might be done in ways that, as I said, won't just address this challenge, but hopefully provide a sort of a more thoroughgoing way of addressing challenges in the future as well. Dr. Sintola, thank you for joining us today and for your great insight. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Sintola's work, check out the links in the description of this episode for references. Please keep an ear out for our next episode, and we'll see you next time as Penn talks to science.